the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. This, in fact, is our last of season seven. After this episode, we'll be taking a few weeks break. And as has become our tradition, we're spending this last episode looking at a classic text in the history of philosophy. This week, we're talking about the master-slave dialectic or the lord and bondsman dialectic from Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. But before we do that, as usual, I'm going to ask my co-hosts what are they drinking and whether they're ranting or raving. So Jason, what about you? I'm going to have an Anchor Steam, which is a beer I enjoyed back when I lived in San Francisco for a brief bit, and a beer that I'm trying to support now because they unionized and workers are trying to buy the company from Sapporo, who wants to close it down. So in support of the Anchor Steam workers, I don't even know if you can find it on the East Coast, but I'm going to have an Anchor Steam. And I'm going to rant about negligent dog owners. In my neighborhood, we have a few people, and it's sad to see they let their dogs stay inside or even in the basement in one situation for hours and hours at end. Now that it's summer, you can hear them barking desperately. They need some attention. They need some exercise. It's no secret. I'm a dog lover. (laughs) People who have dogs and don't want to do the work really piss me off for the dog's sake and for everyone's sake. I mean, the way I look at it, you have to do a lot of stuff to have a dog, including picking up shit. But <laughs> you get a dog, and the trade-off, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, still is in your benefit. Here, 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 here. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? I'm just going to have a frozen margarita today. And this week, I'm raving about honeysuckles. <laughs> So it has been, as everyone knows, so hot (laughs) this summer, but I do have a honeysuckle hedge behind my house that, for whatever reason, has managed to survive this heat and just smells glorious. If you're a Gen Xer, you probably know this, when your parents used to just send you outside with nothing to eat except for honeysuckles, but I love the honeysuckle smell, and this is that time of the year when it just fills the air and it's absolutely beautiful. Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Today I'm going to have a Paloma, and I am raving about an article in the New York Times. The headline is, My Impossible Mission to Find Tom Cruise. This is an article by Katie Weaver. And she really just does go on a mission to find where Tom Cruise lives. He's sort of dropped out of the view of the paparazzi, and they go on this mission to find Tom Cruise. And it's just a really delightful article, which allows the author to talk about popular culture and the role of celebrity and Tom Cruise and how he fits in. It's just a really amazing article. Just a heartwarming stalker story. (laughs) You know I'm a sucker for a good stalker story. (laughs) So, Lee, I'm going to saddle you with the daunting task of telling us what it is we're going to talk about today in terms of the Lord and Bondsman dialectic. Yeah, this is a daunting task. (laughs) So the dialectic of lordship and bondage, more commonly known as the master-slave dialectic, 
is a moment in a much longer and exceedingly difficult to read, <laughs> much less understand, text by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, which is entitled The Phenomenology of Spirit. It's probably worth noting right here at the outset that despite how frequently this passage is referred to in a wide number of fields, so psychology, sociology, anthropology, history, literary analysis, any number of area studies, and even in economics, very few of the scholars who reference it have slogged all the way through Hegel's phenomenology, and even those who have, like me, will tell you that one time through is not enough. <laughs> Nevertheless, like Plato's Allegory of the Cave from The Republic and Nietzsche's story about the lambs and the birds of prey from Genealogy of Morals, both of which we've discussed before on this podcast, Hegel's dialectic of lordship and bondage manages to capture in a concise and powerful way something both intuitively true and yet at the same time utterly mystifying. So today, my co-host and I are going to encounter each other as free consciousnesses in the wild, so to speak, seek recognition from one another, and be prepared to battle to the death to understand the dialectic of lordship and bondage. <laughs> So the dialectic is part of the phenomenology of spirit. And a little bit of context is necessary. It shows up in the section where Hegel is considering what self-consciousness is and shifting to this idea that consciousness is an awareness of the object, but how do we become aware of who and what we are? Mm -hmm. And he comes to the conclusion that self-consciousness is desire – that we become aware of who we are through our desires, but these desires cannot be the desires that we share with other living things, like desires for food and so on. A truly human desire has to be a desire to be recognized or a desire to, in some sense, be desired is one version of it you sometimes hear in the more psychoanalytic version. So Hegel tells a little story of the master and slave. And I should say that if you read the phenomenology, one of the things that makes it really difficult is that Hegel will vacillate between a narrative of individual consciousness coming to its own awareness and self-understanding, and sometimes he'll sprinkle that with references to the history of the West and its own cultural development. Yeah. So sometimes we're reading about things that are happening to a person, and sometimes we're reading about moments in a culture. Right. And it's a little unclear where the lordship and bondage section fits in that divide. Are we talking about our struggle in history? And this will come up more when we talk about, because I can't imagine we're going to get through this episode without talking about Alexander Kojev, yeah. who's really the guy who's in part responsible for making this a hit single from <laughs> the phenomenology. And it really is. It's a weird hit single. I was thinking about, do you remember that song, One Night in Bangkok? Yeah. By oh, yeah. Murray Head, which... Turns out it's a single from a Broadway play about chess. What? Yeah. It became a one-hit wonder in the 80s. It's from a Broadway play about chess. In some sense, I always think of Master and Slave as kind of like that. It's yeah. this big, epic concept album Hegel's working on here, and someone yoinks out the one passage, and that became the hit. They're like, that slaps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's got a beat, and you can dance to it. I give it a nine. That was a digression. Back to what happened. So part of the issue with recognition is that we need to be recognized by someone we can recognize in turn. And so in order to illustrate that, Hegel tells the story of these two consciousnesses, these two individuals encountering each other. 
like on a lonely, desolate road, and both demand to be recognized. You know, you have to pass for me. No, you must pass for me. (laughs) And they both want to be seen as someone who values recognition more than their mere biological life. So they have to both be willing to kill and, more importantly, willing to risk their lives to be recognized. Yeah. And so one option is they both die. But Hegel says probably what's going to happen is one is going to pick life, and say, whatever you do, just don't kill me. And the other is going to pick recognition above life. They're going to do some crazy batshit move. Like they're going to throw (laughs) their sword or something and willing to do anything to win the fight. And so these two responses become two aspects or two moments of consciousness. It's really what happens after that, in some sense, becomes the dialectic. Because the one that picks just life becomes the slave or the bondsman. They end up subservient to the other. The one that risked everything becomes the master. Yeah. It turns out they both end up getting the exact opposite of what they desired. The master gets recognition, but gets recognition from a slave, from a toadying yes-man. You know, the master's always like, hey, if I wasn't your master, we'd probably hang out. I know you're stuck with me because I'm going to kill you, but you think I'm cool, right? And the slave says yes. And the master's like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I still think it's the killing that gets him saying yes to me all the time. (laughs) And on the flip side, the slave who wanted just life, just survival, just don't kill me, is constantly threatened with death all the time. And their life, which was going to be stable, is constantly unstable. Now, the other thing that happens in this story, it's a story about recognition, and it's a story also about desire and work. I mean, this is why it's a hit. Hegel packs everything in there. He's like, you want desire? Oh, it's in there. You want work? Oh, it's in there. You want death? It's in there. He's got everything, except for romantic subplot. He's got everything you want in a little story in there. So the other aspect has to do with work. Because the master, of course, gets a slave not just to recognize them, but the slave to do stuff like make food and bring stuff to them. The master only knows what it wants. It doesn't really know how the world works beyond that. It only knows its desires, but knows nothing about its desires. The slave, on the other hand, works in the world, transforms the world with its activity, and produces, you know, plants the garden and so on, doing all this stuff for the master. These two things, the fact that the slave is constantly threatened with death... And is working and gets, in some sense, and this is the thing I always find weird and tricky about this passage, is that Hegel begins this whole thing by saying, the only way you can become self-conscious is through recognition. But then he goes on to say, well, the slave becomes aware of his or her abilities by externalizing their efforts in the world. They look out and they recognize their mind is not just some ephemeral passing thing, that they can think about something, they can do it, and they can see their abilities in the world through work. Mm -hmm. You can tell this is a story about recognition, or you can tell this is a story about work and its transformative effects on subjectivity. But the thing seems set up for a reversal, for the slave constantly dealing with fear and work being ready to overturn the situation and the master living this very hollow, empty existence of a recognition which is not one relating to the world and a misapprehension of the world seems ripe for revolution. Although that's not really what happens next in the phenomenology. (laughs) But if you just listen to the hit single and not the concept album, you're ready to go to the dance floor and you're ready for the revolution. Fair enough. Can I just take one quick step back for Dave and others like him? We've used the word dialectic, and Jason gave a really good example of that. He pointed out the Lord wants something, seeking something, recognition— 
And yet, in order to find that recognition, the Lord actually requires the opposite of it and can only get this recognition by means of the opposite of it. Hegel often calls that opposite the negation. And when you're in a situation where the thing you're striving for requires the opposite of the thing you're striving for, this is the situation in which Hegel's philosophy then tries to figure out okay, what's really going on here? What's the truth that underlies both sides? So when we use the word dialectic, we have in mind that kind of a situation. At the moment, immediately following the life or death struggle, when the master recognizes the slave as a slave and the slave recognizes the master as a master, we have to understand those as asymmetrical recognitions. And this is why ultimately Hegel says that the consciousness of the slave is the truth of the master. There's this really great passage where he says, no one can be a hero to his valet, not because the man is not a hero, but because the valet is a valet, right? right? right. <laughs> to be recognized by someone who you're forcing to recognize you is not real recognition. Right. And as Jason indicated, one of the important aspects of this is that by the end of this struggle, as Lee pointed out in the introduction, struggle to the death, the form of self-consciousness that makes it on through the rest of Hegel's story is actually the consciousness of the slave, not the consciousness of the master. And so, in a sense, mm -hmm. from here on out, the story will take off from what we've learned about this from the bondsman or the slave, or as he puts it, the dependent one actually understanding that they're the independent one and the Lord is the dependent one. And so, I mean, Hegel doesn't use this language, but they kind of win. Right. Yeah, I think that maybe we're not putting enough emphasis on freedom here, because it's not just that the two consciousnesses that meet on the road, as Jason <laughs> described it, it's not as if they want to simply be recognized like a tree or a, an animal would be recognized. They want to be recognized as free. In this mm -hmm. sense, it is important to back up a step before they met each other and imagine what life would be like having never encountered another free consciousness. So prior to this, the consciousnesses are surviving in the world, but not really meeting any resistance to their freedom, right? If they're hungry, they kill something and they eat it. If they want to walk in a certain direction, they just plow the field down in that way. Their freedom is never really challenged. This is why they demand recognition, because only another freedom could freely recognize you as a freedom. Your pets or your plants can't do that. Only another freedom can. And I've always asked myself, why does this have to be a struggle to the death? but also only another freedom could risk their life for recognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the demand for recognition is a demand that another recognizes me for not just being an animal, for not just fulfilling my bodily needs and keeping myself alive, but recognizes me as fully human. And I think, Lee, you're right to point out that really, in the end, what that means is it's really, for Hegel, freedom that makes me fully human. And spoiler alert, it's going to turn out freedom has its own dialectic. And this is the beginning of it, not the end of it. But I think you're rightly that freedom is really crucial here, which is why then we get this story about the master or the lord and the slave or the bondsman, because in a way you would say, well, the bondsman isn't free. 
because the bondsman is dependent completely on the master and owes its existence and life to the master. And yet, as Hegel points out, there is a certain kind of freedom that emerges, the freedom that comes with me being able to realize my ideas in the world by making shit. (laughs) And it turns out that the freedom that the Lord has is only the appearance of freedom. The Lord needs the bondsmen because the bondsmen are the ones who cook, make clothing, and build furniture and houses and so on. And so the Lord has a weird kind of freedom. The bondsman has a weird kind of freedom. And it's playing out that weirdness that goes on in this section of the text. But I'm not sure, though, we answered your initial question, Lee. Namely, why does recognition of the freedom of each in this meeting, why does that have to play itself out unto death? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess one way I think about it is not just you have to kill someone, you have to risk your life too. Yeah, that's right? definitely it. And I yeah. think that one reading, part of being human is to be concerned with something more than just simply surviving. Is to think that there's something you value that to some extent your survival is secondary to it. And I think that's not just true in very militaristic conflict, but you think about the figure of the starving artist. Right? A starving artist is someone who thinks that I have this artistic vision, that's more important to me than making a living. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of ways in which we decide in our day-to-day lives that there's something that we value more than just simply survival. And part of what Hegel's getting at is that part of recognition is be seen as something that has higher stakes than simply just living. Right. You know, not to overuse this word, which we're probably going to overuse this word in this episode. It's a very dialectical point because you can't separate that striving for something from survive, right? You can't entirely put aside your biological existence and just be like, oh, I want to be seen as this. You have to figure out a way to make a living. Even the starving artist has got to make a living. Yeah, I think the first way that you described it is the best way, which is that a freedom is something that can sacrifice its life, its freedom. So, I mean, just think about all the things around you, right? Like your broccoli doesn't sacrifice itself to you, and neither do animals that you eat if you eat animals, mm-hmm. and neither does your chair when you move the chair to sit down, right? They don't mm-hmm. freely decide to change, to move, to die, to be destroyed, whatever. So the consciousnesses prior to encountering one another have mostly just gone through the world consuming and destroying things with no Mm -hmm. resistance. Now they meet something with a resistance. And we could imagine on the road, this is the first time I've ever seen another consciousness. And I think it's just another animal or a tree or an inanimate Mm -hmm. object. I'm going to try to just move it out of my way or destroy it. But if it resists and says, I'm not an animal, I'm not a tree, you can't just, you know, cut me down or whatever. Mm -hmm. How am I going to prove that? Other than to say, look, I'm going to fight you until this is over. Now, at some point, one of us is going to realize that in order to be a freedom, I still got to be breathing, right? right? Like, Because I'm definitely not mm-hmm. free once I stop breathing. You know, so at some point, one of them is going to recognize that their freedom is more important than their life. But the mm-hmm. initial move towards sacrifice to show that I am a freedom 
is exactly as Jason just described. It's a way of showing that I'm a free consciousness. Now, as we've been saying, after the struggle, it's only the one who saved their own life, who capitulated, that's going to actually have the truth of his or her freedom. Because the other one never really had to confront their death, the fear of death even, and therefore never realized that in order to be a free consciousness, I have to choose my life and my freedom. Right. That, I think, is a really crucial point to keep in mind is that up until this point in the text, for Hegel, consciousness has been encountering, this is not his word, his word is objects, but let's just call them things. Yeah. And as Lee said, you know, mm. I could move things, I could eat them. As I say, the three human questions are, can I eat it? Will it make me high? And can I fuck it? <laughs> That's the relationship we have to things. And now I'm encountering this thing. Initially, I'm like, well, this is just another thing. And Lee, you're pointing out, and this is really crucial, it now presents itself to me as something other than a thing. Yeah. Like, screw you, I'm not a thing. And that's a really important moment in this text. In this first part of the phenomenology, and I'm not pointing out something that many people haven't noted before, but in the first third of this phenomenology, the way that... Hegel describes the dialectical unfolding of consciousness looks a lot like basic psychological development in mm, a human being, yeah. right? So we start mm. with sense certainty, like how do I know mm. what this and that are, what here and now are, and then he moves on to perception and it unfolds after that. So I don't think it's actually that difficult, even if you haven't read the phenomenology, to think about a small child first demanding recognition. There comes a point in the maturation of consciousness that we demand that our freedom be recognized. And if anybody's ever encountered a small child, that always involves struggle. <laughs> and if anyone has ever been in a struggle to the death with a small child, you lose. Because <laughs> they will run right out into the street <laughs> to prove they're free. Or just scream for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> Listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. In my view, the dialectic of lordship and bondage is where a lot of scholars who borrow this passage from Hegel stop. They read the master-slave dialectic as only telling a story about how asymmetrical power relations are formed. In other words, when threatened with death, anyone could be enslaved to anyone. And then they just stop. But I don't think that's really the point here. I mean, as we were saying in the first section, it's the slave's fear of death, which previously put them in the position of the slave, that caused them to be not just dependent on the master, but also to retreat into this much more profound self-consciousness. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about 
as Jason said, how much people borrow this single off the album. Yeah, there's a lot of covers of it. (laughs) There's a lot of covers of it. And ask you guys, what are some of the ways in which you think this is misused as a passage or misread? I think, first of all, the reason why this is so appealing to so many people working in a wide variety of fields is precisely because of this issue of recognition. You know, you could think about a politics of recognition. You could think about the demand of recognition in a sociological context. You could think about the demand for recognition in an economic context. And so I think because it plays out the complexities of what's involved in this issue of recognition, it has a kind of appeal beyond the scope of the phenomenology and beyond the scope of philosophy. And by the way, you don't find a lot of anthropologists picking up the last section of the phenomenology of spirit, yeah. um, namely absolute knowing, and you know, thinking <laughs> this is great, because if this is rough going in terms of reading and understanding, this is nothing compared to the end. Uh, <laughs> but I think one of the problems is that, as you were indicating, Lee, the focus tends to be on the fact that this demand for recognition is a self-defeating game, and it's a self-defeating game because it's always going to be asymmetrical. And then I find many scholars just stop reading and they walk away. Many scholars, I find, don't plunge the depths of what goes on in that self-consciousness that Hegel then analyzes as belonging to the slave or the bondsman. That's where some interesting features of self-consciousness emerge. And if I stop short of that, I think I miss some of the greatest moments of this section of the text. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the other reasons why this has become a hit single, I want to say this briefly. I mean, there is a person responsible in part for this, right? Alexander Kojev gave a series of lectures on Hegel from 33 to 39 that were published as a book in 49, I believe. I mean, like Kojev's reading is, he really reminds me of something I experienced in grad school where someone hasn't done all the reading, <laughs> but they don't want to admit that. So they insist that the part they read is really important. Like, oh, we got to talk more about this. Kochev talked about the rest of the phenomenology, but this is all because of the master-slave thing. Right. He really makes it central. And I think part of the appeal of making it central, this is also what is wrong about it, is that it's central because it seems to carry with it, and I think Kojev even uses this word, a kind of formation of humanity and anthropogenesis. It has the thing we need to become human, recognition seen in our freedom. It has the things that limit us, death, work, etc. It has a kernel of all of human life. But Hegel isn't that interested in just simply the parameters of an individual's life. He's interested in the way in which that struggle gets caught up in a bigger struggle of humanity's own self-awareness, this thing he calls spirit, right? And to some extent, this passage can be read in a very individualistic way that is ultimately very unhegelian. Because for Hegel, we all become who we are in and through the moment of the development of culture, society, etc., this thing he calls spirit. And this passage, like you really can read it as two people on a desert island. You can read it as a very intersubjective and not in the way in which spirit itself is not just intersubjective, it's also institutional. It has to do with the structures and the history of society. So that's both its appeal and I think its real limitation. 
I think that's a really good point, Jason. Yeah, I imagine that listeners can guess that it doesn't just stop with the master and the slave left in those roles. I mean, ultimately, it's got to make another move to what generally gets called mutual recognition. So in the cartoon version of a dialectic, there's a thesis, an antithesis existing in a relation of negation. And in order for a move to, uh, let's say, higher plane, a move closer to truth, closer to freedom, in order for that to happen, the relationship of negation has to be negated so that a new synthetic relation can emerge. And so obviously we begin with these two consciousnesses There's the struggle to the death. They become the master and the slave. But eventually, they have to mutually recognize one another. Now, at that point, it's not hard to see. And I mean, maybe this is a tip of the hat to Kojev, but it's not hard to see how at that point, this does become a way of understanding how individuals turn into peoples and peoples turn into cultures and cultures turn into states. And these same struggles keep happening. And each time we're getting a more sophisticated, more complicated dialectic emerging but the move of spirit, of Geist, as Hegel calls a world historical spirit, is always moving towards greater and greater synthetic relations, such mm-hmm. that ultimately, as Rick said at the end of the book, it's like absolute knowing, right? There are no more relations anymore. It's just the literal world historical spirit that knows itself as both subject and object. So yeah, I think that you're right that we can blame Koja for the overemphasis on the master and slave moment in that development. But I still think that scholars in other fields and scholars in philosophy, like I'm not going to excuse us from this, misread this passage a lot. I think it was Fanon who famously accused Jean-Paul Sartre of, as he says, making the Negro a minor moment in the dialectic. Mm. You know, not understanding that when we're talking about more complicated social relationships, it's not as if this sort of simple master-slave, then mutual recognition dialectic plays itself out as easily and as cleanly as we would like to think it does sometimes. Mm-hmm. The end of this section points out that the mistake was the mistake of two self-consciousnesses taking themselves as individuals. Right. Each one is an I, mm-hmm. and the demand for recognition is, in fact, when you recognize me as an I, I now for the first time recognize myself as an I, And as Hegel ends this, the failure here is the inability to see that the I is a we and the we is an I. In other words, as Lee, Mm -hmm. you pointed out, mutual recognition. That is, this isn't really Mm -hmm. just about individual relations. It's about social relations. And once these two I's become a we, then the question of recognition transforms itself in an important and different way. Yeah, and anyone who's familiar with Ubuntu, the African ontology Ubuntu, this is the basic premise, is that I am only I through other people. That kind of mutual recognition, which forces us to see that we are only self-conscious if our conscious... Uh, Let me start this over. (laughs) See, this is what he does to us. We are only free self-consciousnesses when our consciousness recognizes that the self is only itself and free through the other person's freedom and self-consciousness. Right, and that's not a negation. That's not a threat. That's a synthesis, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
But I think one thing that came up in the early section that I think is important and ties into this is as Lee, you were talking about this whole version of encountering another human being is fundamentally different than other objects in the world because it has, you know, a consciousness and can resist. But the other thing that human beings have that differentiate them from other objects in the world is that they can be self-negating, mm. which is to some extent what the slave does. They are able to say, my will is not important. My desires are not important. Just don't kill me, right? <laughs> that ties into the other point that I think is important about this is I think that Hegel is giving us in the master and slave, he's giving us extremes. He says that. He's like, these are the polarizing extremes of consciousness. And if we want to think about recognition, maybe one useful way to read this passage is that all of our relations with others have some power dynamics in them, and those power dynamics corrupt or warp the field of recognition. Mm. Like, I mean, when I teach this, I say it's always someone who's asking for an extension on the paper who always tells me how great the class is. <laughs> and I can't take that as serious. He's your ballet. <laughs> yes. There's a slavish element. There's a power dynamic in our relations with others, and it really underscores how much this ideal of mutual recognition, how difficult it is to arrive at, because it entails someone for whom I have no power over them, they had no power over me, and I can take their word as their word, as their evaluation of me, right? Because the other thing I think mm -hmm. about recognition in terms of what you're saying about the we that is I is that one of the ways I talk about this passage is to talk about how little you would know about yourself if you were the only person on earth. Mm -hmm. All the qualities we like to think of when we think about ourselves as being good, smart, attractive, they'd all be meaningless if you were the only person on earth. You'd simultaneously be people's hottest man alive and the ugliest <laughs> schmuck that ever lived. <laughs> But Jason, there would be no magazine called People. It'd be that old issue of Time magazine with the foil cover, right? Yeah. The man of the year was you. It'd just be that. Right. <laughs> I often think that this is the experience of the super wealthy mm. or the super famous. And I've come back to Hegel's dialectic of lordship and bondage many times when I was thinking about this. Mm -hmm. Because they live lives that I imagine, I mean, I haven't lived their lives, so I don't know, but they live lives that don't encounter resistance. Right. I mean, the world really is just a world of things to them. And okay, I'm going to tread on thin ice here. Mm -hmm. Let me just say at the beginning, I am not defending Michael Jackson, but I've often thought this way about Michael Jackson. You know, here is a kid, right, from age five who was famous and powerful and for the most part lived his entire life in an environment in which no one resisted him. Nobody said no. Kept himself separated either through his fame or his wealth or his self-imposed isolation. But nonetheless, you cannot be surprised that someone like that has a stunted, immature Right. Consciousness, stunted, immature understanding of themselves, literally haven't been socialized. And so I imagine that if you ever went through the world as a master or if for whatever reason the conditions of your life have led you to believe that you are a master, that you don't understand that valets are forced to right. call you master. And you really do think every time someone says, yes, sir. Looking good, Mr. Jackson. <laughs> of course, Socrates, <laughs> it must be so. You right. think that it must be so. And you end up wearing epaulettes. Those little like weird military shoulder things. Michael Jackson wore them. 
Jack White when he started making yeah. a lot of money. Like every person when they somehow get disconnected from reality goes in this weird <laughs> quasi-militaristic right. fashion direction. And I think that's the point at which no one is saying like, like I'm sorry, those don't look good on you. You look like in a, in a musical version of the story of Mussolini's life. One blunt way to put it is that many people come back and listen to this hit single over and over again because they want to show that human relations are inherently and essentially relations of power differentials. They're mm-hmm. unequal power relations, and that's just what our relations are. I think, Lee, what you're pointing out with your example is that that's not the story Hegel wants to tell. Mm-hmm. Hegel wants to tell the story that, yes, there is a way in which if we could, as Jason so beautifully did, stage this initial meeting of these two self-consciousnesses, they're really playing a game of chicken here. Yeah. It's going to be a struggle to the death that might be a struggle to the death of both of them. You know, you could imagine a duel mm-hmm. in which they both fire at the same time and everyone's dead. And so the story is that one of these two recognizes, wait a second, the only way to win this struggle is to actually lose it. The only way for me to win this struggle is for me to give up my demand for recognition and to become dependent on the one in power, to become dependent on the Michael Jackson or the Elon Musk or whoever. The story Hegel wants to draw from that is that that's not a human relation at that point. That's the opposite of human relation, and that needs to be overcome in order for this relation to be a properly human relation. And moreover, it's not a true relation, yeah. according to Hegel. I mean, it's pathological. In the same way that when these consciousnesses were gallivanting about the world, consuming and killing everything without any resistance, that's a pathological form of consciousness, as is a form of consciousness in which there is this asymmetrical relation. That's also not a true form of consciousness. So we can see that a person who meets no resistance in the world is going to be pathological. Both people who are in a relationship of lord and bondsman is going to be pathological. And that is also going to be true collectively. That's going to be true of societies. That's going to be true of institutions. It's going to be true of cultures that until they can make that next synthetic move where there is true recognition, true relation, then it's going to be doomed to, I mean, failure is the wrong word, but it's going to be doomed to pathological relations, which is ultimately going to be important for Hegel. And this is where we're getting into some dicey bits of Hegel. But, you know, Hegel is later in the phenomenology going to be talking about cultures in deeply (laughs) racist terms, but he's going to see certain cultures as too dependent on universalist thinking. He's going to see other cultures as sort of captured by simple sense certainty thinking. And he's going to look for the culture that is this synthetic, more rational, more free. Kel Surprise, that culture is... Wait, let me guess. Let me guess. No, 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 you're never going to believe it. (laughs) It's 19th century Germany. I was sure you were going to say Ethiopia. (laughs) No, missed it by that much. I think on this pathological issue, to unveil some of the mystery behind our podcast, we actually do prepare 
And Lee wrote a document to help us prepare. In that document, Lee, you talked about the Hunger Games. To bring the Hunger Games back really does help to see why Hegel doesn't think that this unequal power dynamic is healthy, I guess, non-pathological, and the one that can only achieve proper freedom, not just the appearance of freedom, but actual real freedom. If you look at the Hunger Games, in which the game is set up so that everyone is a thing just like every other thing, you could see then the world that that Mm -hmm. dynamic creates. And I think that's the moment where you begin to see this is not a model of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a good point because obviously it's not about the Hunger Games, like where all the kids are fighting and killing each other. It's about the fact that that is staged as a cathartic moment for the society to understand how society works. Right. And what they're being given is an untrue picture of how society works. And so the society itself repeats these pathologies in the Hunger Games. And in case, listeners, you can't connect the dots here, that's America. (laughs) (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. (laughs) Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, Just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. it's too much of a stretch to say that in the 80s, 90s, even up until the early 2000s, academia across many fields was captured by this idea of the politics of recognition. And it's definitely not too much of a stretch to say that this passage in Hegel played a huge role in people's articulation of the politics of recognition. It does seem, though, that in the last 20 years or so that there's been one real resistance to the politics of recognition and academic rehashing of this Hegelian dialectic in talking about recognition, but also a move away from the importance of recognition as such, as a useful concept to understand society. So Why do you think that's happened? Do we need to bring back Hegel or have we moved on? I'm wondering, how would you distinguish between politics of recognition and identity politics? And I put these two together just for this simple reason. I could see, for example, that identity politics, which would be a politics based on the various ways in which one identifies queer, racially, and so on, that would at the same time be a politics that demands you recognize me as I identify myself. And so is there a connection between the politics of identity and the politics of recognition, or do we need to keep those apart? 
I think there definitely is a connection. I would say it a slightly different way that the politics of identity is not just about how I want to be recognized, mm. but also about mm. how I am recognized or misrecognized by society. So it sort of doesn't matter if we're talking about gender, if we're talking about race, if we're talking about sexuality, class, etc. It is both a politics of recognition and a politics of identity. And I think on that point, part of the use of recognition to encapsulate identity politics, identity politics were in some sense about being recognized, like being seen how you want to be seen. I think a lot of that oddly imported the division that Hegel has in his text where he separates what's happening with the master and slave in terms of recognition right. from what is happening between the master and slave in terms of their material conditions, right? Exactly. But the yeah. master gets stuff and the slave works on stuff. And you find this in the writings of people like Nancy Frazier where they distinguish between politics of distribution and politics of recognition. That's to me, is the real limitation of this idea, that you can separate those two things out, that there are some things that are happening in politics that are just about recognition, and there are some things that are happening in politics that are just about the distribution of resources, work, etc. People who are marginalized in terms of recognition are also often, and not coincidentally, exploited and exposed to worse working conditions and so on. So it seems to me it's kind of a fallacy to say that we can talk about distribution or we can talk about recognition as if those two things were ever taking place separately. I mean, to me, I think one of the most interesting things about this passage in Hegel, and I know I'm saying a really loaded term here, is the way in which Hegel contradicts himself. He begins the passage by saying, the only way you can get recognition is through another, to be recognized. And then he ends the passage with saying, oh, but turns out the slave in their work, they're gaining a sense of themselves and their subjectivity. They're in some sense being recognized by an object, as weird as that is to say that they are looking out of the world of objects and they're saying, oh, I'm capable of things. I do things. I understand who I am, even if I'm not being appreciated, yeah. right? Because one thing is important to point out is this is not a master who says, good job, slave. This is a master who's yeah. dangling the sword over their head at all times, right? There's no recognition from the master. So I think the contradiction here that Hegel, in a weird way, recognizes sorry, I used that word. Hegel sees that there is a way in which you become aware of yourself and your capabilities, not just through others, but through your relation to the world as well. In a weird way, I think, suggests that even Hegel saw that recognition and economic relations cannot be separated. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think what's interesting is the ways in which sometimes the politics of recognition could be used as an overlayment in order to prevent the analysis and acknowledgement of the politics of distribution. And so where the politics of distribution turn out to be really ugly, we could overlay a kind of recognition mm -hmm. on top of that and say, well, see, everything's right. fine. In a way, I think this is what goes on when, for example, the Supreme Court says, well, yeah, you know, there was a time where there were a lot of racist assholes, but those days right. are over. And so now we don't need the Voting Rights Act anymore because mm -hmm. those days are over. And there is a sense where I'm going to act as if I'm recognizing you in lieu of acknowledging the actual material conditions right. on the ground. And I think there's a separateness of these two kinds of politics, but they are also used against one another. 
An example of that is after the summer of 2020, the massive Black Lives Matter protests, you had all these things happening like, okay, we heard you. We're taking on Jemima off syrup bottles, right. you know, and like this weird attempt to really make a hollow recognition. I mean, Black Lives Matter at its core is about the unequal exposure to death at the hand of the state. Yeah. And you got all these gestures all over the place, like actors doing the voice of black characters on cartoons were recast. And you got members of the Democratic Party wearing their kunta cloths and taking a knee. Mm. You got tons of politics of recognition as a replacement. I mean, exposure to death, that's the thing, right? Exposure to death, where does it fit? in this division between distribution and recognition. It doesn't easily fit in the sense that it is about economic conditions, but it's also about social relations beyond Except that. Except it is, as Butler would say, a distribution of precariousness. Yes. But I think that the messiness in separating or even understanding the relationship between recognition and distribution has to do with the fact that we have for however many centuries mm. organized ourselves in this pathological way. The fact that we can't really manage it now mm -hmm. is that it's pathological all the way down, right? That there is no mutual recognition. But that doesn't answer the question, where did the asymmetry begin? Why did the asymmetry begin? Do you think that European explorers went to Africa or went to the Caribbean or went to South America and said, these people are inferior, therefore I can steal from them? Or do you think they went and stole from them and then, right. as an excuse, had to recognize them as inferior, right? I do think that that is still a question about which there is legitimate and important debate. This is the Marx-Hegel debate. Is this an ideological pathology or is this a sort of material pathology? Right. But I think in an interesting way, Jason is pointing to a moment where Hegel seems to be a lot more Marxian than might otherwise appear. Because when Hegel is looking at the role of work in the life of the bondsman, what he's really pointing to is production. This is a moment in which the bondsman is not producing things for themselves. They're producing things to be consumed by another. This is the first time you get in the phenomenology production as a form of or as the result of work. And what Hegel here is pointing out is that while it may seem as if the two sides of this, the consumptive side and the productive side, are entering into a free contract of free individuals, that freedom is empty on both sides. All the while, it's lopsided, yeah. right? So it's an empty freedom, but nonetheless, it's still a lopsided freedom. And so I think Hegel here is pointing out that maybe the form of self-consciousness and therefore the form of recognition is not all that separate from the form of at least production. Let's leave aside distribution, the form of production, and they might be to use a term from Heidegger, equiprimordial, mm. that they emerge at the same time. Yeah, I think there's another parallel between Hegel and Marx in terms of the larger dialectic. You know, we don't really have time to go into detail of how the two consciousnesses in the master-slave dialectic end up mutually recognizing one another, but... I'll just tell you, a miracle happens. <laughs> like So there, there's this moment of forgiveness that really makes no sense, where Hegel says there's a melting of the hard heart, and you're like, okay, well, there, 
that so that that happened, right? But it's similar in Marx as well. I mean, Marx says, "Look, I'm going to tell you a whole story of the struggle that leads up to this thing, the revolution." Do you remember that Far Side cartoon where it was the mathematicians looking at the chalkboard that's full of this big long equation, <laughs> yes. and then there's this moment where it says, "Like, and here a miracle happens," right? right. And it's sort of like that. I mean, if it's a real revolution, we don't know what it's going to look like, and we don't know what after the revolution is going to look like. Right. Hegel, kind of the same way. He's like, look, I'm going to lead you all the way through this struggle up until the moment of mutual recognition, and I'm just spitballing here, but maybe it's forgiveness. <laughs> well, but but I, I think this points to something, Lee, you brought out earlier, namely that if the politics of recognition is to have a real importance, then it would not be the recognition of you as an individual recognize me as an individual. Exactly. It would have to now be something that, if it's not universal, at least is not the negation of universality, mm. that it is accepting of a certain kind of universality. And so it might be the recognition of groups, it might be the recognition of cultures, and so on and so yeah. on. But it also has to be true. I yes. mean, I say this because what you just described sounds a lot like all lives matter. Right. But the truth right. of the statement, all lives matter, is not all lives matter. Right. So That's it has right. to be a true all lives matter. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is a perfect example of a Hegelian dialectic because the only reason to insist all lives matter is in order to deny that black lives matter. Correct. And so, in a sense, it's true if it's false and it's false if it's true. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been a great discussion, Rick, who I recognize, and Jason, who I recognize as free. This has not only been a great discussion, but it's also been a great season. I'm really excited about next season. Like we said at the top of this episode, we're going to take a couple weeks off before we begin season eight, but we have got some amazing topics and interviews lined up for season eight, and I'm really excited about it. But before we get out of here, it's last call. Any final statements, guys? Well, first, let me thank both of you for what has been another tremendous season, and I've learned so, so much. And let me also just point out that although Lee just recognized me as a free and independent self-consciousness, we as a podcast are not independent. <laughs> that is, to quote the philosopher Blanche Dubois, we rely on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> And you could certainly help us out by supporting the work we're doing for you, our lords, <laughs> by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We've given some levels there that you could contribute at. And by the way, no one has taken us up on any of the perks we offer yeah, there. Yeah. And so I challenge you to go to our Patreon page and look at what the actual perks are. We got merch. Yeah, we got merch. <laughs> and you could call us to account for these things. So we really appreciate your listening. And if you can't afford to support us, we totally understand. Material goods are not distributed evenly. We certainly understand that. But you know what you can do is you could rate us and give us a review on whatever podcast app you listen to. That goes a long, long way as well. But yeah, thank you both for a great season. 
Yeah, thank you both. And I just want to reiterate, you know, Patreon is where audio slaves become masters. <laughs> You're subject to us ranting and raving in your earbuds right now, but you go to Patreon and you can become a master and get perks and pull our strings. All right, guys. So I called a cab. It seats three valets, so that will catch you next season. My hero. Bye. 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 Bye.